Section 10 of Gallipoli Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillum. Section 10, June 15th to 26th, 1915. June 15th. Many reinforcements have arrived and troops are everywhere now, covering the Hellas Plateau up to Pink Farm with their camps, dug in in trenches called rest camps. There is not much rest for them today, for Asia as well as Achi is making them their target. As I essay to go up to brigade headquarters, I find the West Krithia being shelled. It is almost impossible to ride across country on account of the camps, and one has to keep to the roads so I postpone my journey to later on in the day. I get laughed at for this, but it is the first time that I have started to go to brigade headquarters and funked it. I reply that if they would like a nice fat shell in their tummies, they can ride up the West Krithia Road now. However, they are only ragging, and any man who looks for shells is a fool. We are being shelled very badly from Asia today. They appear to have six big guns over there, somewhere opposite Morto Bay, and no doubt they have observation posts at Kumkali or Yenisher, and can see all that we are doing. We must make perfect targets. Their shells are reaching all over the peninsula now, and one fell right over our bivy, exploding in the shallow water of the sea, killing a quantity of fish. These shells from Asia are doing a lot of damage. Every time they come, men lose their lives or get wounded, while the casualties among the animals are keeping the hands of the veterinary services full. A six-inch shell came right in the supply depot this afternoon, but did not explode, yet it caused a sad casualty. It struck the leg of an Army Service Corps driver, a boy of twenty, and severed it clean from his body. He evidently did not realize it, for he made an attempt to stand up and hold back his mule, which was bolting with fright but, of course, he immediately fell back. Shortly after, he died. They shelled us at intervals until dusk, just two or three at a time, and at intervals of half an hour or so, keeping us on tenterhooks. Phew! Give me the nice deep trenches when this goes on, where one walks about in comparative safety. There is no cover on W Beach. You hear the distant boom, and then fall and grip the bosom of Mother Earth as a frightened child does its mother. Then get up and go on with your job. But not so the Army Service Corps driver. His order is to stand by his mule on W Beach, that bull's eye of a target, and I hope that many of these drivers are not forgotten when names are called to be sent in for honorable mention. Riding and driving their mules at the same time they are prevented from hearing the horrid shriek of the onrushing shell by the loud sound that the wheels of their general service wagons make, and only when they see and hear a nerve-wracking explosion or hear metal whizzing past their heads, making a sound like a propeller of an airplane, do they realize that they are under fire and in instant danger of being blown to bits. Yet they must not leave their mules, they must get the animals, wagons, and themselves under cover as soon as possible. As soon as possible? And that may mean ten minutes, 
and ten minutes of hell. I have not yet seen a driver leave his mules, but I have seen several wounded and one or two lads killed. But, c'est la guerre, it is only the Army Service Corps quietly doing its job. No glory and honor, but ask an infantryman in the line here if he would change places with an Army Service Corps driver on the beach, and he will say that he prefers to stay in his trench and take his chance when the moment for the leap over the parapet comes. But the Army Service Corps never talk much. They just do their job, and when cursed for this, that, and other trivial matters, say, Sorry, we will see if the matter can be improved. Improved? We are the finest fed army in the world. Where is the room for improvement? At dusk I go up to brigade headquarters with my staff sergeant and overtake a draft for the Hampshires on the way to join their battalions. I meet Usher, and he conducts them to their new trenches, and asks me to take Major Beckwith, who is just back, having now recovered from a wound in his leg received on April 28th, after he had earned the Distinguished Service Order, up to Brigade, which I do, and I wait and have a drink with General Cayley. There are not many bullets about. Starlights go up continually from our and the enemy's front line. It is a weary walk back, and I wish that I had ridden. Millward, naval landing officer, came to dinner last night. He was the landing officer on the Dongola, and had the job of sending us off to our doom on April 25th. Also Warburton, off a submarine. He was with Holbrook when he got the Victoria Cross. June 16th. Not very heavy shelling this morning. A few rounds near our depot at issuing time. No shells from Asia. The French have been touching them up a bit over there, and probably they are shifting their position. The French are hot stuff in getting on to the enemy's positions. No letters, no rumors, and life very monotonous. Large numbers of men going off sick with dysentery. In the afternoon they start shelling again up the Crithia Road, and again I postpone my visit to Brigade Headquarters until nightfall, and ride up this time. First time my mare has been to Pink Farm by night, and she does not like it at all. There are plenty of bullets by night, and but few by day. They continually flatten themselves against the ruined walls of Pink Farm. The Turk appears to enjoy sitting in his trench, cocking his rifle up, and spraying with bullets the road up which he knows transport will come. Riding back just halfway to W Beach from Pink Farm, I see a bright flash to my left on the shores of Asia, and a few seconds after, hear the deep boom of Asiatic Annie, a shriek and a dull thud on W Beach. This is the first shell from Asiatic Annie sent over by night, and if we are going to get them by night, our life will be pretty poisonous. No place on this little tip of land is safe from shells now, and this afternoon the ships lying off have to clear away. To see a battleship now is a rare event on account of the constant fear of submarines. June 17th. Coming back from issuing this morning to my bivvy on the cliff, I hear ship's horns tooting continuously, and running to the edge of the cliff I see a supply ship, which is lying immediately opposite, hoist a red flag, being the signal that submarines are about. Destroyers, minesweepers, and small pinnaces from shore put out to the transport and cruise round and round her, 
I see distinctly a shadow glide along on the water on the side of the ship furthest from us, looking like the shadow from a cloud in the sky, and then it disappears. Men on board are all around the ship, peering over the side. Then, suddenly, I see, bobbing about in the water, like a big fisherman's float, the red tip of a torpedo. Someone on a trawler shouts through a megaphone to the other craft, Look out for that torpedo! A small rowboat from the trawler puts out, rows up to the bobbing object in the water, fastens a rope round its nose, and rows away, towing it after them. On nearing number one pier, the pier nearest to us, a military landing officer standing on the pierhead shouts, Is the pistol head on? A reply from the boat says, Yes. And the military landing officer shouts back, Well, take the damn thing away and sink it. The oarsmen then head their boat out to sea, and after some arrangement which I cannot see through my glasses, sink the torpedo. Ordnance get to hear of this and are annoyed, for they would prize such a find as one of the latest German torpedoes. It was quite fifteen feet long, with a red-painted nose and a long, shining, bronze-colored body. Later we hear that the submarine had fired two torpedoes, and by being too close to her quarry, missed. By being too close also, she was missed by the destroyers, for they at the time were making circles round the transport at about the distance of the usual effective range of a torpedo. Shortly after, the supply ships were driven off out to sea by the Asiatic guns. Our 60-pounder guns are firing hard over to Asia. I hope they have got the range of their guns. Our bivouac, unfortunately, is in the direct line of their fire, and as each shot is fired, we can't help jumping, and our bivy shakes its flimsy walls. Three shells from Asia pitched right into our hospital on the edge of the cliff at the left of W Beach, looking seawards, killing two orderlies and wounding six. Yet the doctors calmly went on their work of bandaging and dressing. The hospital is on a bad site, for it is only divided by a road from the little village of Marquise, forming the Ordnance Depot. At 8.30 p.m. I go up to brigade headquarters with an orderly, and leave the horses at Pink Farm, and walk across that 250 yards with bullets whistling more than usual, for tonight the Turks appear more energetic with rifle fire. It is an eerie sensation walking across there in the dark when many bullets are about, walking very fast, almost counting one's steps, and getting nearer and nearer to the little light on the side of the hill. Had a chat there for twenty minutes in the dugout with General Cayley and his staff, and had a drink. Rather a nice picture, with the candles and the cheery officers sitting round. Outside, the sound of bullets whistling continuously. I say good night and go out, and find my orderly crouching pretty well down in a dugout, and he says he thinks we had better hurry out, as it is a bit hot, and as he says so, ping, goes a bullet between us. But the bullets do not give me the fear that those horrible high explosive shells from Asia do. A moon is getting up, and so we are able to trot back smartly. The scene on the Krithia Road at night is just what I imagined in past life war to be. The wagons trekking up to the trenches, with, of course, no lights, and troops of all kinds moving up and down. In the distance, star shells shooting up and sailing gently down, 
illuminating the country as light as day, and as one gets nearer to the firing line, the crackle of musketry gets louder and louder, and during the final walk of three hundred yards from Pink Farm to headquarters, the song of bullets flying past one makes one very much alive. Overhead a perfect sky, and myriads of stars looking down on a great tragedy with a certain amount of comic relief. These days we wish for more comic relief than we are getting. June 18th. This morning Asia's guns have not worried us so far, but the batteries in front of Achibaba are very active, and are worrying the troops in the valley very much. The sound of bursting shrapnel reminds me of the spit and snarls of angry cats. Our artillery is quiet. Rumor says that another enemy submarine has been accounted for, but the one that came in yesterday morning is still at large, and consequently our fleet is unable to come and help us. At two o'clock, HMS Prince George is sighted off Imbros, surrounded by twelve destroyers and preceded by seventeen minesweepers. It was a very impressive sight to see, all those destroyers and sweepers jealously guarding the great ship from submarine attack. She takes up a position opposite the Asiatic coast, well out from the mouth, and then opens fire with all big guns on the Turkish batteries on Asia in position opposite Morto Bay. We enjoy seeing the pasting that she gives them, her big guns rapidly roaring away, and belching forth spurts of flame and buff-colored smoke. Everybody imagines that every Turkish gun must be knocked out. After four hours she leaves with her retinue of smaller ships. Half an hour after, one big gun on the Asiatic side opens fire onto V-Beach, and simultaneously a heavy Turkish attack on our left starts, supported by a tremendous bombardment from Turkish artillery. The fight lasted all night, and ended about six in the morning. Their infantry left their trenches very half-heartedly, and our machine guns accounted for a heavy toll of enemy casualties. June 19th. We gave way at a part of our line last night, but regained the ground later in the early morning, and our line is still intact, and as we were. We lost heavily, but Turkish losses were enormous. Captain Usher, my staff captain, was killed this early morning in the trenches by shrapnel, and I feel his loss awfully. He was always so charming to me. It's the good uns that go, as Wilkie Bard says. I am sure this war is too terrible to last long. It is simply wholesale butchery, and humanity will cry out against it soon. At 11.30, an exceptionally heavy shell came over from Asia, a high explosive, and fairly shook the earth. Two minutes after, two more came, and every living soul rushed for cover. Then for three hours they pasted us. Over they came, one after the other, with terrific shrieks and deafening explosions, throwing chunks of hot, jagged-edged metal whizzing in all directions. All the mules and horses, as far as possible, were got under cover, and men rushed to their dugouts. Carver, Way, Davy, Foley, Phillips, and I were under cover of the cliff in our bivy, which cannot be called a dugout, as it is simply a wide platform cut in and built up on the side of the cliff, 
and in the line of fire between the sixty-pounder battery twenty-five yards to our west and the asiatic battery the sixty-pounders soon opened fire and then a duel began and after one or two have pitched first over our bivvy into the sea and one or two just short we get nervy and decide to quit phillips and davy made the first dash down the cliff and the others said they would wait for the next shell it came shrieking along burst and i got up and made a dart down the slope i was down to the bottom of that cliff in thirty seconds and found myself with the divisional ammunition column people and all amongst boxes of high explosive ammunition column officers are there but i begin to think it would have been safer up in the bivvy where the others still were for they did not follow me after a lull in the firing i went up to the cliff and halfway up they popped off again and i was fortunate in finding a very safe dugout belonging to major horton and he invited me in with major huskisson major shorto pool and weatherall and while shells still come over first bursting on the beach then in the sea then on top of our cliff and then on the high ground on the back of the beach we have lunch seven thirty p m i am writing this in our bivvy once more and aeroplanes are up spotting for the sixty pounders they have just popped off one almost shakes the cliff when she fires asia has answered but her shell has pitched on the east side of w beach the suspense of waiting for these shells is getting on the nerves of us all what gets on my nerves more than the shells is the losing of the puka regular officers of this splendid division who are so cheery and manly so reassuring to one and to each other when they are killed the stuffing and grit are almost knocked out of you we four supply officers have been under fire almost every day since april twenty fifth night and day and a rest away from it all would be awfully welcome yet we pull ourselves together when we realize what the infantry have gone through and are still going through i hate talking like this it makes me think i am getting wind up fish is plentiful today killed by asia's shells brought in by enterprising greeks and sold to tommy's excellent eating june twentieth last night one asiatic gun fired over to our camp one high explosive shell every half an hour but everybody was well dug in and no harm was done i was sound asleep this morning turkish artillery is very active but asia's guns are not doing much we are improving our bivvy making it possible to do our work without much interruption it is almost impossible to keep books and organize the feeding of an army with high explosive and other shells dropping around lord knows where next at the supply depot however we are very exposed and it is very trying to stand there issuing day's food and loading up the wagons with shells flying overhead and therefore i am having a proper dugout made we have had many casualties there now and the supply and transport men have absolutely no chance to save themselves when standing in the open with high explosives bursting near we try and treat it humorously but it is always a relief when the job is done this morning my staff sergeant came to me and said the r a have taken shriek of a shell and a bang during which we both looked over our shoulders them supplies to the gully sir 
I reply, all right, and then we both duck behind a biscuit box as another shell comes nearer. Not much use, really, getting behind a box, but it looks safer than nothing at all. As Hislop, our Canadian veterinarian, says, any hole looks good when Asia gets busy. This afternoon I walked along under the cliff to Gully Beach to see my brigade, who have now gone into reserve for a rest. On the way we pass a padre holding evening prayer and preaching a sermon. As I come back, I learn that several shrapnel had burst over the cliff, two officers, one man, and a horse being wounded. A piece had hit the heel of the boot of the padre as he was conducting the service. I spoke to several officers of the Royal Scots, who had been in the fighting two nights ago, during which the Manchester Territorials retired, evacuating two trenches, which the Royal Scots and one company of the Worcesters took back twenty minutes after. Colonel Wilson, officer commanding Royal Scots, has been awarded the Distinguished Service Order for this piece of work. Bombs were used freely, and when the Royal Scots had got to the foremost trench at one time, Turks and British both occupied the same trench, the Turks hastily erecting a barricade in the trench itself to protect them from the Royal Scots, who, however, quickly drove them out by bombs. Steele assured me that the Turks were using explosive bullets, but I doubt this, but I do think that they reverse their bullets now and again. I notice that his face is pitted with little cuts, and I learn that he has suffered this through being in the front line with his regiment in the battle of June 4th, and on reaching their objective, the Turkish trench in front, while hastily helping in the work of building a parapet with sandbags, was struck full in the face by a sandbag, bursting through being struck by machine-gun fire. He is acting adjutant to the regiment. I hear there is to be a French bombardment tonight, followed by an infantry attack. June 21st, 6 a.m. There is a fearful bombardment going on. Every battery on shore is concentrating its gunfire on a Turkish redoubt on the Turkish left, called the Heriko Redoubt, and also on the trenches. The Turkish batteries are replying furiously, but without effect, though Asiatic Annie is rather nasty, her shells falling around the French batteries. One cannot see the effect because of the dust that the shells are kicking up, which is blowing right down to the beach. The 60-pounders on our right, 25 yards away, are joining in with a deafening report. Only one is in this action. The echo of her voice plays ducks and drakes around the coast and the few transports about, getting fainter as the sound dies away. French battleship at mouth of straits firing heavily, destroyers continually patrolling around her. 11 a.m. The infantry attack by the French has started, and there is a report of heavy musketry all along their line. 12 noon. I can see the French advancing under a perfect hail of shrapnel over the ridge behind de Tott's battery. They are lost to view, and now I can only see hundreds of shells bursting and hear an undertone of musketry. I can see nothing now but dust and smoke. 4 p.m. On duty at depot. Fighting died down. Howitzer from Asia firing our way but cannot reach us. Shells bursting about Hill 138. News that the French have done well and advanced quite a good way. 6 p.m. Asia fires on submarines off W Beach and nearly hits one. They clear off for half an hour and then come back. Perfect weather and fine day for flying. Aeroplanes doing good work, whirring about over Achibaba and Asia. 7.45 p.m. 
The Turks are counter-attacking our right in force, but the French, with the support of the 75s, are holding the ground which they have won today. Roar of guns growing louder and louder. If the French manage to hold their own, it will considerably lessen the morale of the enemy, and the hill should be taken in the near future, and our own job will be half over. 8.30 p.m. Battle still going on. On beach, Tommy's singing, There's a little gray home in the west. Sun just going down behind Imbros, making most lovely coloring. Sea dead calm, most peaceful scene looking out to sea. But when one turns one's back, one sees a great battle raging three miles inland. Extraordinary contrast. June 22nd. Very hot, but perfect day. French attack successful yesterday. They took two lines of trenches, and so have shortened and strengthened our front. Walked with Phillips and Birch, second in command of another submarine that has just arrived, to Gully Beach, overland. All quiet on front. Turkish artillery dead quiet. But French 75s now and again popping off. Sea Brigade headquarters now in rest on the side of cliffs, and also Essex Regiment. Hear that Revel of the Essex has died of wounds. Ripping young chap. Had a cheery chat with him up at Brigade Headquarters two weeks ago. The 29th Division officers are falling fast now, and we feel their loss terribly. A Taub came over this morning and dropped three bombs, but only hit one man, wounding him slightly, but killed nine horses. I thought I saw the bombs drop quite clearly as I was watching through glasses, and it was surprising the time that they took to drop. I may have been mistaken, the Taub was about over me, but I thought I saw a pencil line, as it were, drawn against the sky. Nasty suspense waiting for the things to reach the ground. Officer commanding of the West Lowland Territorial Engineers, killed by shell at Gully yesterday. Very fine chap. 8 p.m. A quiet day. Rumor that we are to expect asphyxiating gas dodge, and that we are going to have respirators served out. Unfortunately, the prevailing wind is down the peninsula and in our faces, and we are barely four miles from the Turkish trenches. Beautiful evening, and the sun setting behind Imbros is making most exquisite coloring. June 23, 10.30 a.m. Turks very quiet. French 75s now and again firing. Very hot, fine day. Rode last night to Gully Beach with Carver, round by road on cliffs on W Coast. Beautiful moonlit night. Wagons trekking up and down, and now and again a sentry challenges with his bayonet pointed to the breasts of our horses, which we rein in, at the same time shouting, Friend! Answered by, Pass, friend, all's well. I should like to feel that it really was all well. Enemy aircraft brought down yesterday, falling in Turkish lines. French losses in recent battle, 2,000. Tonight I ride again with Carver to Gully Beach, which is now the home of the 29th Division headquarters. The steep cliffs on either side of the gully are honeycombed with dugouts, each with a little light shining, and in the declining light, with the moon hanging overhead, shining on the sea, it is a very beautiful sight. We had a topping ride back along the road on the edge of the cliff overlooking the calm sea, lit up by silver moonlight. We could see quite plainly enough to canter, and cantering by moonlight in such beautiful surroundings is a unique pleasure. 
June 24th. Today has been very hot and arid, very fine, and the sea dead calm, but artillery duels have been going on all day. As the French were so successful in their last battle, having captured those trenches and the Heracot Redoubt on their left, thereby straightening and shortening our line, I think there is going to be another general attack for the hill tomorrow, preceded by an exceptionally heavy bombardment. If successful, then the danger of asphyxiating gas attack for the present is over. Went up to brigade headquarters with Phillips. Beautiful moonlight and all quiet on front. Had a nice gallop back on West Crithia Road, but my mare nearly ran away with me. A bit dangerous going, as there were so many shell holes about. Pink Farm and West Crithia Road get so badly dusted with shrapnel all day and every day now that I usually go up by night or early morning to headquarters. June 25th. It is now exactly two months since we landed. Turkish artillery has been fairly active today. It has been very hot, but a beautiful day, and now a most beautiful night, with the sea dead calm. We are having some nice bathing. The fly pest is worse than ever and is frightfully worrying. The attack is not to come off tomorrow after all, but Sunday. Today the Lord Nelson, escorted by destroyers, went up the west coast and bombarded some target behind Achibaba. Shortly after, a column of smoke arose behind the hill, and evidently the Lord Nelson has made good practice. She was shelled by a Turkish field battery, but only two shells burst immediately over her and hardly did any damage. June 26th. I rose at 5.30 a.m. and, getting my mare saddled, rode over to the other side of the beach and woke up Butler, the quartermaster of the Worcesters, who had promised to give me what he called a personally conducted cook's tour of the first-line trenches. We had some hot tea and biscuits and a tot of rum, and then we mounted and started off. My mare was full of the joy of life and very fresh. As we went over the crest on to the west coast road, mist was hanging low on the cliffs and at the foot of Achibaba. Above, the sky was cloudless. The words of Omar came to mind. Awake, for morning in the bowl of night, has flung the stone that puts the stars to flight. I wish the stone would put the Turks to flight. We rode to the gully and then down to the beach. There a priest was preparing an altar on biscuit boxes, and about four hundred troops were waiting to take Holy Communion. We rode up the bed of the gully, and it was the first time that I had been right up. The engineers had made a good road up, winding in and out between high, irregular cliffs covered with gorse, and passing little gullies running out of the main one to right and left. All up for about a mile and a half the sides are honeycombed with dugouts for troops to rest after a spell in the trenches, for battery headquarters and signal posts, etc. We passed the headquarters of the 86th Brigade, the latter being dug in in a charming spot a mile up from the beach. Thompson, my late staff captain, was seated on a terrace high up the cliff, shaving and shouted, Good morning to me. Arriving at the head of the gully, we dismount and hand over horses to a groom with instructions to him to take them across country to Pink Farm. We meet Harding, the quartermaster of the Royal Fusiliers. We climb up the right side of the gully, a most beautiful spot which would delight artists, and enter into a trench, over which bullets whiz and now and again shrapnel. 
passing along the trench for some way, we turn to the left and go for quite a hundred yards along the communication trench, leading into a maze of trenches, but we are enabled to find our way by directing signboards such as to reserve trenches, to support trenches, to fire trench, and names of units marked on as well. We at last find ourselves in the reserve and have a chat with the Essex. Then we wend our way and pass along an uninhabited trench, an evidently disused communication trench, and come on what is literally the emblem of death grinning at us. We see a grinning skull with almost all the flesh rotted off it, a bundle of rags, a hand, and two lower parts of legs with boots and putties intact. Such a sight in earlier life would have filled me with horror, but I look upon such sights now as one would look upon a ruined house. We come to a dugout in the support trenches and are asked to wait as two men have just been hit by shrapnel. Two reserve heavy artillery men tell us that at the end of the next communication trench there is a naval 12-pounder gun that had opened fire that morning on what was thought to be a poisonous gas factory in a nullah in the Turkish lines, and that a Turkish battery had found our gun out and was shelling it. The two men who happened to be here had been hit. Shelling seems to have ceased, and one reserve heavy artillery man said to the other, Come on, Bill. If we are going to get it, we are going to get it. This sounded good philosophy, and so we followed them. One of them shouldered a sack of food, and the other two jars of rum. Round the corner we passed the two wounded men, one wounded in the arm and the other badly in the shoulder, but both seemed quite cheerful about it. We went along the communication trench, on and on, until I really thought that the damn trench would lead into the Turkish lines, and then it gradually got shallower and shallower, until we found ourselves in the open, but under cover of a rise, which was more or less protected from Turkish fire. Then, suddenly, we came on this twelve-pounder gun, and saw three gunners crouching in a dugout. The two gunners who were leading the way went off down another trench hastily, pointing the way for us to follow to the fire trenches, and we nipped over that open space in double-quick time, I taking a heap of used cartridges in my stride, and at last we found ourselves in the well-dugout front-line fire trenches, where we found the Worcesters. We had a chat with the officers. Shortly after our arrival, shelling began again with that twelve-pounder for a target. They put salvo after salvo over at the place we had passed. It was rather interesting watching the shelling from our part of the trench, and the sergeant major seemed to be thoroughly enjoying it. We have a look at the front trenches, which are very well made, with high parapets of sandbags, iron loopholes and periscopes, and nice little dugouts for officers' messes and for men to sleep in, and kitchens, larders, stores, etc. All the time bullets whiz over or thud against the sandbags, but one feels quite safe there, although only a hundred yards away from the Turks. It is a bit dangerous going along the communication trenches by day, as in places one can be seen, and from there can't see the enemy, they being so shallow. We soon got back along the beastly long communicating trench to the reserve, another one further along to the one we came, then to the support line and up out into a nullah, and following that along, we came to the open place into which several nullahs run, known as Clapham Junction, which often gets shelled pretty badly, 
and always under fire from overs. Thence on to the main Crithia road and across country to the Pink Farm, where we found our horses waiting. They were shelling the West Crithia road, and so we cut across country to the West Coast road and cantered home in fine style, arriving back to breakfast at 9.30 a.m. Not much artillery fire came from the Turks during the day, but the 75s were steadily plugging them in. End of section 10